from just a vague sense that like many slave names, it was European. My father couldn't name anyone from our family tree before his great-grandmother, Mary Lloyd, a slave from New Orleans. Preceding her was a terrible blank. After Mary Lloyd came Edward Isham, the son she named after his white father, a merchant marine who threatened to take the boy back with him to Europe. To save him from that fate, Mary shepherded her son to the Bay of St. Louis, where it empties into the Mississippi Sound. There he grew up and married a Creole woman called, deliciously, Philomena Leneau. They gave birth to my grandmother, Mabel Sincere, and her favorite sister, Emily Isham, for whom I am named. It sounds Arabic, one of them remarked. Thank you, I said. Do you speak Arabic? I know better than to try. What do you mean? No, I don't speak Arabic. What are your origins? I felt caught in a loop of the Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first. There was no place for me inside their rhetoric. I didn't have the right vocabulary. I didn't have the right pedigree. My mixed race had made me a perpetual, unanswered question. The Atlantic slave trade had made me a mongrel and a threat. Ms. Rabateau, do you want to get on that plane? I was beginning to wonder. Do you? Yes. Answer the question, then. What are your origins? What else was I supposed to say? A sperm and an egg, I snapped. That's when they grabbed my luggage, whisked me to the basement, stripped off my clothes, and probed every inch of my body for explosives inside and out. When they didn't find any, they focused on my tattoo, a Japanese character. According to the tattoo artist who inked it, the symbol meant different, precious, unique. I was completely naked, and the room was cold. My nipples were hard. I tried to cover myself with my hands. I remember feeling incredibly thirsty. One of them flicked my left shoulder with a latex glove. What does it mean? He asked. This was the first time I'd been racially profiled. Not that the experience would have been any less humiliating had it been my 500th. It means fuck you, I wanted to say. Not merely because they'd stripped me of my dignity, but because they'd shoved my face into my own rootlessness. I have never felt more black in my life than I did when I was mistaken for an Arab. Why was I so angry? As a consequence of growing up half-white in a nation divided along racial lines, I had never felt at home in the United States. Being half-black, I identified with James Baldwin's line in The Fire Next Time about black GIs returning from war, only to discover the democracy they'd risked their lives to defend abroad continued to elude them at home. Home, the very word begins to have a despairing and diabolical ring. Though my successful father, Princeton University's Henry W. Putnam Professor of Religion, was an exception to the rule that black people had fewer opportunities, and though I had advantages up the wazoo, I remained so disillusioned about American equality that much of my young adulthood was spent in a blanket of low-burning rage. I inherited my sense of displacement from my father. It had something to do with the legacy of our slave past. Our ancestors did not come to this country freely, but by force.
the general Kunta Kinte rap of the uprooted. But had it even more to do with the particular circumstances of my grandfather's death? He was murdered in the state of Mississippi in 1943. Afterward, my grandmother, Mabel, fled north with her children in search, like so many blacks who left the south of the promised land. It was as if my father, whose father had been ripped from him, had been exiled. My father's feelings of homelessness, which I took on like a gene for being left-handed, were therefore historical and personal. And truthfully, because he left my family when I was 16, my estrangement had also to do with the loss of him. My family was broken, and outside of its context, I didn't belong. The El Al security staff had turned up the flame beneath these feelings. At 20.